Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. 1 John chapter 5 is where we're going to be today. So before we go ahead and jump into this last chapter of John's first epistle, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for this time this morning, this opportunity and this place that we have, that we can come and open up our words and sit in comfort and safety. Lord, I thank you for that. Lord, right now I, I just feel that we need to pray for those people around the world who don't have the same safety and comfort, but yet they still gather to hear your word, to study your word, to pray and to worship you. All around the world, Lord, I pray right now for the churches that are underground, the churches who are coming together despite great danger to their very lives, Lord. They're coming together as a church because they love you, Lord. Lord, I ask that you would bless this time this morning, that you would use this time this morning to speak into our hearts, Lord, Help us to prepare our hearts to be able to receive what it is that you have for us today. We thank you, Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. All right. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. I, there's so much here, gang, that you're going to be, we're going to be like almost done, and we're only going to be to chapter 3, or verse 3. But just stick with me, because I told the second service to not come till 1.30. Verse 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. First of all, let me again just remind you, it's very important to remember as you walk through this letter especially, why John wrote this letter and who he's writing it to. He is writing it to the churches in this area, maybe in Ephesus, but it's not identified just to them, but he's writing to believers, and he's going to identify through this especially born-again believers. He's writing to them because... After they had received Jesus Christ as their Savior, there were those who were coming into the church. Is that not, not on right? <clears throat> coming into the church who were bringing a false teaching saying that Jesus, um, you know, he wasn't who he said he was. He wasn't a man. He might have been God, but he was more of a phantom. Or remember, they were talking about the fact that they have like secret knowledge. And if you really want to know who God is, you have to know the secret knowledge that we have too. And you can only know it if you come along with us and then we'll tell you our secret knowledge, but that's the only way. And John is coming in and he's saying, no, he goes, none of that is true. He's going to say over and over again, remember, so that you can know the word no is remember. We're going to talk about that. But remember why you accepted Jesus and who he was. And he's going to say he was a man and he had to, and he was, a, and he was fully God. And last week we talked about this idea that he was like, he had to be fully God so that he could be the one that lived a life that was perfect without spot and blemish so that he could be that sacrifice for our sin. And he had to be fleshly man so that he actually could be physically crucified and bleed his blood. He had to be both of those things, and John is going to reiterate that again and again, um, and we're going to see that today. But in this very first verse, he says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. That, so much in that, just that first half of the verse, whoever believes, the word there believes is not just um, like believes he exists. It literally means to trust in Whoever trusts in the fact that Jesus is, by the way, do you see that? Is, it doesn't say was, is, as is, as in, is still the Christ. Jesus, whoever believes that Jesus is, not was, but is, continues to be the Christ, remember we said Christ was um, uh, anointed one, the one sent by God. Mashiach in Hebrew, the Messiah, is born of God. Born of God, it literally means um, generated out of God. We would call that born again. So I rewrote the verse now with all of those comments. So here it is. Whoever trusts in Jesus as the anointed one sent by God, who still is delivering those who call upon him, is born again. Got it? 
Can we agree on that? That's only the first half of verse 1. But he's reminding of them that again. And everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten. You know what that means? I like the NLT rendering of that verse. It says this. Everyone who loves the Father loves his children too. Well, hasn't that been the message that John has been telling them? Like, you know what? You're supposed to love God. And if you love God, you will love God's children also. You, need, you will love your brothers and your sisters in Christ. You will love them. <clears throat> How do I know, though? How do I know if I love God's children? Well, it says in verse 2, by this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. (laughs) So true godly love for one another only comes from loving God and obeying God first. You understand? First, we do that. If loving and obeying God isn't first, then my love for my brother or my sister becomes something that I can boast of, something that I claim that I accomplish. But if I love him and obey him first, then I can love my brothers and my sisters. I cannot love people with the love of God unless I have the love of God. I can't give you what I don't have. I can't give you influenza if I don't have influenza. You get it? If you don't have the love of God, you can't love with the love of God. But how do you know you have the love of God? Because you, uh, you love God and you keep his commandments. He says in verse 3, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. You can't claim to walk with God and then walk in a direction that's different than the way he's leading. Can you? Can you do that? If God is saying, come on, let's go this way, and you're going, okay, no, but this. Are you walking with God? (laughs) You know, um, when my kids were little, I would put out my hand and I would say, come on, come with me. And because they loved me and trusted me, they would put their hand in mine and off we would go. And maybe we would be in like the store, Macy's in New York is where it would be. And we'd be walking along. And because they love me and trust me, they're walking along with me. And there we are. We're all going in the same direction. But occasionally, very occasionally, they rebel And they see something that they want that's different than the direction that I'm leading. And then they start to pull away. And you know what they do, actually? You probably, if you have kids or grandkids or have ever walked with a child who's holding your hand, they let go of your hand because they want to go. And you're like, and you grasp on. And you're like, no, this way, this way. And they rebel. And they're like, no, this way. And I want that. And I want to go over there. And what happens is they let go. And sometimes, you know what they do? They fall on the ground. Do you ever try to pick up a kid that doesn't want to do what you want to do? And they just go limp. And you're trying, trying to hold up a kid that's limp. And then, and then you're the parent who's just dragging your child through the mall. And they're just like, now, that's because I'm like, no, I know better. We're going this way. Now, unlike a heavenly father who says, oh, if you want to go another way, okay, I'm not going to drag you along. You could choose to go in another way. Now, that heavenly father may be upset and saddened and even angered by my rebellion, but he will let go. But he doesn't stop loving me, does he? And like my heavenly father, when my children would pull away and I would say, okay, I wouldn't stop loving my children. I would be upset that they were lying on the floor or walking away, but I wouldn't stop loving them. But I would do the same thing that my heavenly father does is I would put out my hand and I would say, come on, come on. And if my children were smart, they would come over and they would put their hand just like we do. And see, that's the same thing we do. Sometimes we pull away from God and we say, no, I want this. And he lets us go. But then he says, come on, 
And he lovingly stands with his hand open so that we can put our hand back in his and go the way that he is going. I can't claim to walk with God if I'm walking in a direction that's different than the way that he is leading. These are his commandments. We keep his commandments. If we love him, we keep his commandments. Oh. You know, John knows that a lot of these people at this point had been trying to keep the commands of their religious leaders. They had added on things to help them keep the commandments. And those things were hard on them. They were a burden on them. And John knows this. He writes that because look at the second part of that verse. And his commandments are not burdensome. See, he says, if you love God, you'll keep his commandments. And oh, by the way, his commandments are not burdensome. Man, I got to do what somebody else is telling this is the thing. This is what I, you know, this is the sense that I get that people are like, why do I have to do what somebody else is telling me to do? I'm my own man. I should be able to make my own decisions. Why do I have to do what anybody tells me to do? Why do I have to follow someone else's commands? And I do sometimes hear that, and I think that's a very kind of like broad understanding of, you know, following God's commands. But let's just be specific here. What are we talking about? He says his, his commands aren't burdensome. What are his commands? Well, we know 10 of them, don't we? I wrote them down. I'm going to just review. God says, don't worship other gods. He says, don't make idols and bow down to them. He says, don't use my name in vain or as a curse word. He says, keep the Sabbath holy and, you know, rest from your work. Honor your mother and your father. He says, don't murder each other. Don't steal from each other. Don't commit adultery. Don't bear false witness against one another. And don't covet the stuff that your neighbor has. Oh, man. Yeah, I got a like on that. All right, excellent. (laughs) Oh, man, you mean that if I claim to love God, I can't steal or murder or commit adultery or tell lies about my neighbor or use your name as a curse word? I have to rest from my work? I can't worship an empty man-made God that I created and have to prop up? God, why are you so mean? (laughs) His commandments are not burdensome. In fact, they're for our good. John says that the commands are not burdensome. How then are they not? How are they not burdensome? They're for our own good. And when you realize that and you love God, it changes everything. When love enters the equation, it changes everything. Do you remember the story of Jacob? He went to work for Laban, his uncle, and he, he saw Laban's daughter, Rachel, and he was like, oh, yeah, I want her for my wife. So he goes to Laban, and Laban says, okay, but you have to work for me for seven years. And it says that he loved Rachel so much that the seven years of labor seemed like days. The burden was no longer a burden because love entered the equation. Have you ever experienced... A middle school child. You have to tell a middle school child, go and take a shower. And when you're done, put on deodorant. Oh, man. I showered like two days ago. (laughs) This is real life. But then somewhere along the line, that child matures a little and they see a cute girl or a, a cute boy and you can't get them out of the bathroom <laughs> at that point. And if you're a middle school child or a high school child here, I'm just telling you that a can of Ox, Axe body spray should last the entire month. <laughs> just saying. 
When love enters the equation, it changes everything. When you love God, his commands are no longer a burden. That's how we can look at that. We could say, oh, we, we love God because we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not a burden. John is saying, you can keep them because you love him, and oh, by the way, they're good for you. As soon as you, when you tell a, a middle school kid to take a shower, it's a burden until love enters the, and then, and, 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 and you know what? Telling a middle school kid to take a shower, is that a bad thing? No, it is not. It's a good thing for them, but to them, it's a burden in that moment. When love enters the equation, it changes. If you're sitting here thinking, oh, man, God's, God's commands are such a burden. Remember that he loved you, so you love him. And in that, his commands no longer cease to be a burden. But you understand that they are for your good. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. This is an unfortunate translation for whatever. It actually is in Greek for everyone who is born of God. Remember, when it says born of God, it means that you are born again. So for everyone who is born again overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Listen to me. Faith is one of those words right now that has been so watered down and manipulated. It's like, Faith, you, you know, you can, you see it all over the word, just the word faith. It's not faith in faith. You can't have faith in faith. You can't have faith in uh, the universe. The universe, by the way, is a vast empty space filled with rocks and light and, and, and all of our space debris, clearly. And it's, it's not anything to put faith in. In fact, the word faith right here, if you were to look up in Greek, it actually means confidence, it says, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our confidence. But not our confidence in ourselves or our own power, our own victory. Our confidence in what? Well, look at, look at verse 1, the fact that we are born again. And what does that mean? That we've accepted the witness of the Holy Spirit that says Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the one who came to save you. It is all him. It is our confidence in what he accomplished for us. That is why we are able to overcome the world, because we have confidence in Christ. He, in verse 5, he, who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So John does something really important right here. Up to this point, he's been talking about Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, right? Whenever he says the Christ, he's talking about the Messiah. But here he says the Son of God, right? And that's where he's now establishing not just that he was the one that was sent by God, the anointed one, but that he is the Son of God. That actually, those two things went together in the first century. They, and, and, be, and before that, they understood that the, the Messiah would be sent from God and would be his son. How do we know that? Here's one. In Isaiah, when it prophesies the coming of the Messiah, it says, born to, uh, born to uh, uh, <laughs> unto us, a child is born, unto us a son is given. It's not talking about the son of a human, it's talking about the son. How do I know that? When Jesus was talking to Peter and he says, Peter, who do people say that I am? What did Peter say? You're the Christ, the son of the living God. They were connected. The Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Messiah, the son of God. Even beyond that, when Jesus was arrested and was being questioned by the high priest and the council, they said to him, are you the Christ? And he said, it is as you say. Then they said, so are you the son of God then? And again, he said, it is as you say. And so they knew at that time that it was meant that the Messiah would be the son of God. If anybody comes to you now and says, okay, well, you know, Jesus might have been the Messiah. He might have been, but he's not the son of God. Then they're not teaching you what the Bible says. The Bible says that the Messiah, the Christ, was the son of God. It's very important what he says right there, the son of God. In verse 6, it says, this is he 
who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. There seems to be a lot of confusion around this particular verse as saying, well, what does he mean when he says that Jesus Christ came by the water and the blood? And, and there's all kinds of theories, and I have one, and maybe, um, maybe they'll all get on board with me someday when they hear this. You know, it could be this. It, it, it could be that they're talking about, oh, it was his, his baptism and, and something else, or it was, you know, the Last Supper when he says, this cup is my blood. This is what I think. Jesus was, because again, what, what context is king, okay? What John is talking about and writing to them about the fact that Jesus was man and God, all right? And that he is the anointed one, the one that was sent, right? So when he says that Jesus came by water and blood, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the one who was sent by God, was, the, um, was come by water and blood, you understand that water generally is talking about actual physical birth. He was birthed. We know that. We actually know that when Jesus talked about the, the, um, to Nicodemus and he says, you have to be born again, you have to be born of water and spirit, he was talking about all you all, all of them and all of us, not himself, but all you all, so meaning that you are born, you're born, physically born, and you, know, you have to be born in order to be born again, right? So you're physically born by water, that's the, the reference there. But we then are reborn or born again through the power of the Holy Spirit, okay? Jesus, though, was born of water to be human, but to then be the deliverer, the Messiah, the perfect sacrifice, he then came through the blood. His blood was shed so that we could receive forgiveness from our sins. And so John is saying that Jesus came from water and blood. That means his humanity and his divinity to be able to save us, his hum humanness to be able to be born, and his blood, which was shed for the remissions of our sin, water and blood. That's what he's talking about here. He says that he, Jesus, not only water, meaning he wasn't just human, he was also God, but water and blood, and the spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. I mean, that's the amazing part, right? What is the job of the Holy Spirit? Mostly to point to Jesus. The Spirit bears witness of Jesus. The Spirit says, hey, Jesus, Jesus is the one. I love this next verse. It's one of my favorites. Verse 7, for there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. I love that. You know why? Because what is that? That's the Trinity right there. The Father, the Word, and the Spirit. The Word we know from John 1.1 1, 1 is Jesus. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And, and so we know that this is talking about there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. That is an amazing confirmation of what we believe the Trinity is, three in one. And here it is in 1 John chapter 5, verse 7. And then it says, and there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. And so what that's saying is that's what the job of the Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is to point to the fact that Jesus came from water and blood and is the means by which we are saved. He is the witness of the water and the blood. If... We receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. You know that if, it really means since, right? So since we receive the witness of God, John's assuming that you receive the witness of other people about other things, how much more is it, are we to accept the witness of God? It, it's almost like John is saying, look, you readily accept the witness of other people why are you reluctant to receive the witness of the Holy Spirit, which is even greater? We do, though, don't we? I mean, we receive the witness of, of people. When you watch the news, news. <laughs> when you watch people talking on TV telling stuff, 
We received that witness, but this is what I realized, and, and uh, well, this is what I think. We really only receive the witness of other people if they agree with what we already think. How often do we agree with the witness of somebody else if they're saying something that is opposite of what we already believe? And when you hear someone agree with you, you say, see, that's what I've been saying all along, You've, you're, and you're receiving their witness. But if they say something you don't agree with, you're like, well, I don't know about that. And maybe you don't agree with me, and in your mind just a second ago, you were thinking, well, I don't know about that. But see, but then you're just proving my point, is that we really only receive the witness of men if they agree with what we already believe. But John is saying, if we do that, and I know you do, why would you be reluctant to receive the witness of God, which is greater? For, and then he says, this is the witness of God that he has testified of his son. He who believes in the son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar, made God a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his son. He has not believed the testimony. Well, what is the testimony that God has given? Well, you don't have to believe me. You can look right at verse 11. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. God has given us eternal life through Jesus Christ. That's God's testimony. And yet some are still reluctant to receive the testimony. But because they're already believing something, and then they're looking for people who are going to tell them what already agrees with them so they can say, see, this is right. This, you know what? This guy is really smart. You know what? It's funny that we find the people that agree with us, and those people are really smart, as if we're saying, those people are really smart. In <laughs> verse 12, he who has the Son has life. Do you know that second has there, he who has the Son has life, actually means is having. He who has the Son is having life. And that word life there, it, it, it can mean physical life or it can mean spiritual life. I happen to think in this verse especially, it means both. If you have the Son, you are having physical life, and spiritual life. You know, it says that the Lord wants us to have life and life abundantly, which means that he has said, look, if, if you are following me, if you're going in the direction I'm going, if you're loving me and obeying my commandments, you will have an amazing life. It doesn't mean easy. It doesn't mean that you get everything that you ever wanted, but it will be amazing and it will be full, abundant, is full. This word life also is the same word that is used in Matthew when Jesus says, small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life. And few find it. See, he's equating that. It's the same word. He's saying the way that I'm telling you to go leads to life. This is the life that you can have if you have the son. If you are having the, have the son, you will be having this life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. The word know there, right there, means remember. Remember. Because you realize he's talking to a group of people who have accepted Christ as their Savior. These are the people of the church. These are the ones that have been following Christ and others are coming in and trying to lead them away. And he's not, he's saying, this is told to you so that you will remember you have eternal life. And that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. You know, even then, even at the time, I mean, Christ had just died, you know, uh, 50 years before them. And then he was saying that they had to remember. How much more so do we need to be reminded on a regular basis? You, we do this. We come here. We study the word of God and we read so that we can remember on a regular basis that we have life in the son of God. 
we have life in Jesus. How many of you need to be reminded of that regularly? Yep, me and Sean and Rachel. Yep, excellent. All right. How many of you need to be reminded that you are forgiven? How many of us are walking around under our own self-condemnation when we even confess our sin like the Bible says, but we're like, it just seems too easy. I mean, I should feel more guilty about this sin. I mean, I do it every day. I should feel more guilty about it. And the devil is, that's the devil going, you should feel more guilty. <laughs> and you go to God and you say, God, I'm so sorry. I, 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 and that's a good thing. Lord, I'm sorry I failed you again in this way in my life. Please forgive me. I can't believe I did it again. And the Lord says, again? Because he says once you've confessed it and he's forgiven you, he remembers it no more. Right? You do. And you lay that burden of guilt and condemnation on your back. You're like, I know the Lord has forgiven me, but I've got to carry this around. I should feel worse about this. I should feel worse because, I mean, it's just too easy to receive forgiveness. It can't be this easy. And there's the Lord looking at his hands and his feet saying, easy? What was easy about that? That's right, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm sorry again. Forgive me, Lord, for, forgive me for not receiving your, I mean, <laughs> we were talking yesterday in our men's Bible study, like, what's the worst sin, the sin that I did or not receiving the forgiveness that God is offering me freely? Embrace the forgiveness. Remember that you've been forgiven. Carry around the, the weight just walk around like this. Pilgrim's Progress, have you seen that? He's got that huge pack on his back. Oh, he's got to, I've got to drag this around. You know that I've had family members who have um, uh, been believers and passed away. And, been, and, and I believe that because the Bible says that they believed in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that when they died, they went to heaven. I believe it so much so that when they pass away, I'm not sad. And then the devil says, you're a wretched person. You're not sad that your own grandma passed away? And I'm like, I should, I should be more sad. Why aren't I more sad? And then I hear the, the voice of the Lord say, because you know she's with me. That's right. I remember. Your word says that. I remember. Now I have freedom to rejoice in the celebration of her eternal life. You know, maybe I'm sad because I'm going to miss her. But she did call me an itch a lot of my life. <laughs> so maybe I'm just happy she's there. No, that's bad. I'm sorry, Dad. I'm sorry. I didn't mean that about my own grandma. She was lovely. <laughs> okay, now this, verse 14, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked for. All right. This doesn't mean that everything we pray for is going to be given to us. Everything we pray for isn't going to be given to us. That's not what that verse is saying. Sometimes we don't get what we pray for. Um, sometimes we don't get what we pray for because our prayers are selfish. James 4, verse 3, you ask, not and you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Lord, Powerball's up to $680 million. I'm claiming it over my life. And Lord, Lord, if you give me that $680 million ticket, I will give you a third. Forget a tenth. Forget this whole tenth business. I'll give you a third of that $680 million. I, you know what? I make this oath to you, God. And God says, uh, no. Because it will come to your ruin. Sometimes 
we pray for what is not a bad thing, but it is not according to his will. Do you see what that verse says? If we ask anything according to, I, I see this is where people get hung up. They, they kind of land on that ask anything part. If we ask anything and they don't look at that next part, according to his will, God has a plan. He has a will. So sometimes we ask something that's not a bad thing, but it is not according to what God's will is. Paul said, Lord, can you please remove this thorn in my flesh? And he asked more than one time. And the Lord said, no, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. No, Paul, that's not according to my will. Jesus himself was in the garden on the night that he was going to be crucified, uh, the night before, and he said to his father, if there be any way that this cup could pass from me, let it be, but not my will, Lord, your will. He prayed that according to the Lord, he prayed to say, Lord, whatever is according to your will, but if it could pass from me, if there was another way that this could be accomplished, I'd prefer that. And the Lord said, no, it must be this way. Sometimes we don't pray. Uh, sometimes we don't get the thing that we've prayed about, even though it's not a bad thing, because it is not according to God's word. We don't have the power to wield the Holy Spirit as a tool no matter how much faith you say you have, I have all faith. God says, but it's got to be according to my will. Prayer is not an instrument by which our will is done here on earth, but that we might cooperate with God in accomplishing his will here on earth until he calls me home or comes and gets me. That's prayer. He says, that if you ask according to his will, he hears. And whatever we ask, we know that we have the petition that we, we have asked him of him. Now, verse 16. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask. And he will give him life. He, God, will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray for that. All right. So, this passage seems to confuse people. I'm going to break it down in two parts for you. Number one is if, a bro if you see a brother or a sister sinning, a sin that doesn't lead to death. Let's just clear that part up, the sin that leads to death. There is no sin that leads to death. It's going to say there is sin that does not lead to death, but there is a sin that does lead to death, and that was what we call in the church the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit, but this is what it is. It's the rejecting the witness of the Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that he went to the cross and died for your sins, that then if you accept that and ask for his forgiveness, he will come into your heart, and you are saved. That's the witness of the Holy Spirit. If if you reject that your entire life and go to death rejecting the witness of the Holy Spirit is unforgivable. The good news is that it is forgivable up until you breathe your last breath. But you don't want to wait because some people are like, oh, excellent. I, that's amazing. So now I could just live my whole life until that last breath and then I'll be just like, Lord, I accept now the witness. And you know what? Here's the deal. That would work if you knew the moment you were going to breathe your last breath, but none of you know. Could be today. <laughs> Sorry. You know, just be careful when you go out to your car. But <clears throat> honestly, if, if you're a, a saved believer here and today is your day, hallelujah. If you're not a saved believer and today is your day, oh, I weep. I weep for you right now because I know where you're headed and it is not the presence of the Lord. So there is one sin that leads to death. That's what he says. But he says, if you see a brother or a sister in sin that does not lead to death, that means like if you see a brother or a sister in the church or in your life that you know is a believer and they're involved in some kind of sin or like a backslidden state, 
This is what he says to do. You're supposed to broadcast it to everyone and tell all of your friends so that everyone is aware of the sinful action that's going on. Just like, what version is that that you <laughs> No, you know what he says? You know what you're supposed to do? Pray for them. Pray for them. That's what it says. For some reason, we want we to like, get in there and be like, I'm going to point out your sin. I'm pointing out your sin, brother. John says, pray for them first. Pray. Pray that they would be restored. Pray that they would come to brokenness so that they would be restored to fellowship with God. You know what? Set, set down that desire to like, I got to confront, I got to confront, I got to confront. Pray for them is what John says. Now that second part, the sin that leads to death. Is John saying here that, well, if they're, you know, we're not supposed to pray for the, our unsaved family and friends. We're not supposed to. He says that there is a sin leading to death. I do not say that you should pray about that. Is he saying, don't, don't pray for those? You know what? They made their bed. Too bad. Sleep in it. No, I don't think so. I think what John is saying, though, is this, and follow along here. I don't think John is saying to pray, Lord, even though they have rejected the witness of your Holy Spirit, which points to Jesus as our only hope, our sacrifice, and our Savior, spare them anyway. Because in doing that, you're asking God to do something he cannot do. You're asking God, when you say spare them anyway, even though they've rejected the, the witness of the Holy Spirit, would you spare them anyway? You're asking God to turn a blind eye to their sin. And he can't do it. In fact, what you're saying is if that were possible to do, you're saying that Jesus' death on the cross wasn't important anyway. Rather, I believe what John would say is don't pray that they would be spared despite their sin, but that they would be brought to a place of brokenness because of their sin and realize their need for a Savior. Like, don't pray for your unsaved friends that he would spare them. Pray that he would bring them to a place of brokenness so that they would receive Jesus as their Savior. I honestly believe that that's where John is going to in this verse. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. We talked about this. He's saying if you're born again, if you belong to Christ, you don't continue in or practice sin. When you hear this, what you have to understand is it's, it's someone who says, I don't want this thing that I'm choosing to live in to be sin, and so I reject the fact that it's sin. I'm not, I, there's nothing wrong with it. In fact, let's celebrate it. He's saying that if you are born again, you don't continue to or live in or practice sin. Now, do we still sin? Unfortunately, yes, we do. Because we are not perfect here. But we also know, and you know, I'm sure, from your own personal daily experiences, that when you sin, there is an almost immediate conviction that comes upon you that was like, I cannot believe I did that again. And you go to confession. The person who is living in or practicing sin does not have that conviction to say that what you just did was sin. They're like, I'm perfectly fine. I'm good. There was nothing wrong with that at all. And John says, that is not a born-again person. He's wrapping it up here because that was a theme from the beginning. He's coming around now full circle. He who has been born of God keeps, okay, so he says, we know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself and the wicked one does not touch him. <laughs> okay. Where it says here that he, um, if you're born again, he keeps himself. The word keeps is actually like protects. Like if you're born again, you are going to protect yourself. How do you do that? 
Well, David said, I hide your word in my heart, Lord, so that I won't sin. Right? So what's a way to protect yourself? It also talks about putting on the full armor of God, the helmet, the chest plate, the, the girdly belt thing, the shoes and the, you know, all the stuff. I'm blanking on the pieces of armor. But, you know, the, I'm going to bring the teddy bear out later, and it's got all the pieces. We can protect ourselves by covering ourselves with the word of God. We can protect ourselves by remembering what John says is he that who is inside of you is greater than he who is in the world. We can protect ourselves. And then it says the evil one can't touch you. You know what that means? It's not like he can't like, do you ever feel like the devil is like poking at you? Yeah, he probably is. Probably not him. You know, the devil can't be everywhere all the time. And so he's got legions of demons um, who are coming after you. And so, like, I don't think that the devil is bothering with me. I'm pretty low on the totem pole. I've got, like, the, you know, like the level two, you know, private who's just, like, you know, poking me all the time. <laughs> I lost my train of thought. <laughs> Turn it. <laughs> Where are you? <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe that they're leaving me alone just because I'm like, oh, I've got the Holy Spirit that lives inside of me. I do believe that prevents me from being indwelt by an evil spirit because he who is in me is greater than he who is outside of me. Do you get that? But can he touch me? Well, I think he can bump into me. I think he can rub up against me. I think he could try and convince me to do things that I know I shouldn't do. I can be oppressed... And I cannot be possessed. But this word here, that he cannot touch you, actually means fasten to or cling to. When you remember that you belong to Jesus and that he has the, the Holy Spirit, you have the Holy Spirit living within you, the evil one cannot cling to or fasten to you. Do you know, what, you know where else that word is used? I think one other place. It is when Jesus comes out of the tomb and Mary recognizes him as not the gardener and it says that he grabs on because he says, Mary, don't cling to me. It's that same word. The evil one cannot cling to you if you protect yourself with the word of God. Whew. You ever feel like you're being overly oppressed by the evil one? Get your Bible out. Start praying the word of God over yourself. Start praying the word of God out there. And watch this. It says The word says that if we submit ourselves to the Lord and resist temptation, the devil must flee. Whew. Just got chills. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. You know where it says um, lies under the sway? We have a saying too, like when we say like we we're talking about oh, like a corrupt politician um, and some criminal, we say, oh, he's in bed with that guy. You, never, you ever use that or hear that saying like, oh, they're in bed together? That's, that's literally what this is saying is like they're kind of like in partnership with one another. And we know, again, remember, verse 20, and we remember that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know, that's a different word, it means experience, gnosko, so that we may experience who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. So that we can experience Jesus. Remember, he is talking to them about these false teachers that are coming in. Well, you can't really know. You can't know. If anyone in your life, and you're talking to them about, you know, the fact that you have an assurance of heaven, uh, or that you know that God loves you, and they say, you can't really know. And your answer is, well, maybe you can't, but I can. The Bible says so, that I can know, that I can experience. I can know that I know. I know that I can experience Jesus Christ in my life. 
This is the true God and eternal life. And then last verse, 21, little children, keep yourself from idols, amen. <laughs> John comes back to this. If you remember when we were in Deuteronomy and he was telling them, you're going to go into the promised land, and there's going to be like idols everywhere, and the temptation is going to be so on you to worship these idols, but don't worship those idols. Keep yourself from idols. That was as they were going in. That was like at the beginning for them. They're going into the promised land to, to, to be this people that God had called them to be in this land that he had promised them. All the way then to here... Basically, the end uh, of the Gospels, uh, of what we know of the New Testament, and John says, and keep away from idols. What does that tell you? The, the pull of, of false gods and idol worship is so strong, and it continues to be. Um, I wrote this down a long time ago. This notice, this is the NLT translation. It says, dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your heart. Keep away from that, John says. Do not let anything take the place of God in your heart. It will not go well. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I do just thank you so much for this incredible letter that you have preserved for us to read and to be reminded of your love and your forgiveness and your presence and your protection. Lord, I thank you. Lord, I pray that I would remember every day. Pray that I would remember, Lord. I pray that I would remember that I love you, and because that, I will keep your commandments. Lord, that I will keep myself from idols. Lord, that I will protect myself through the word that you've given to us here today. Lord, I pray for anybody here that does not know you as their Lord and Savior. Lord, that today would be the day. It says that today is the day of salvation in your word, Lord. Pray there's anyone here um, who even has been coming to church and even looks like a believer, Lord. They know in their heart whether they are or they aren't, Lord. I pray that you would that you would bring them to a place of true and honest repentance, that they might say, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins and come into my life and save me, Lord. Give me your Holy Spirit to help guide me day to day. Lord, let me be the one of the ones that has assurance of eternal life with you in heaven. Thank you, Jesus. It is in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Mm-hmm.